With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Hillary Kerr, and this is Second Life, a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. Today, I am honored to have a true changemaker on the podcast with me. Reshma Saujani, the CEO and founder of Girls Who Code, and the author of the new book, Brave, Not Perfect. I've followed Girls Who Code since it launched in 2012, as it's an amazing international nonprofit that works to close the gender gap in technology. In other words, Reshma is dedicated to changing the image and idea of what a programmer looks like and does. Through seven-week summer immersion programs, two-week specialized campus programs, after-school clubs, and more, they've reached almost 100,000 girls in all 50 states and several territories. There are programs in Canada and the UK, too, and it's truly such an amazing organization. Of course, since this is Second Life, you can probably guess that this wasn't Reshma's intended path, and you'd be correct. Reshma worked on Wall Street and in politics and even was the first Indian-American woman to run for Congress before making a major shift in her life and starting Girls Who Code. Her story is brilliant, and I can't wait for her to share it with you all. Now, on Second Life, it's Reshma Saujani. Reshma, we like to start at the beginning on this podcast. So, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up, and what did you study in school? Oh, wow. I think I thought I was going to be president when I was going to grow up. Me I, too. You did? Very briefly. Oh, my God. But it, it, I had a moment. Yeah. So I studied in college um, speech communications and poli-sci at the University of Illinois Urbana. I've always, like, loved to argue with people <laughs> and to, like, give speeches. Um, so, like, I've, I, I feel like I've been pretty consistent, like— academically and the things that I've liked. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So you graduated from college. Yeah. And I read that you had the intent and desire to go to Yale Law School. Oh my God. Obsession is more like it, but thank you for saying it that way. Intent, we'll say. <laughs> um, but I also read that your path to Yale wasn't straightforward, you could say. So tell me how you got there and what happened after you graduated. Yeah. So... You know, when I was young, I, like, snuck into my parents' basement, and I watched the movie The Accused. Do you remember? Yes. Do you remember Kelly McGillis? I loved her, I was, and I wanted to be just like her. And so I was like, I'm going to law school. And I made my father take me to the library and, you know, basically printed out U.S. News and World Report and taped it on my refrigerator. And I was just as ambitious then as I am now. And I was like, what's the number one law school? Like, that's where I'm going. And it was Yale. And look, I went to Schaumburg High School, grew up in Schaumburg, Illinois. Like, nobody went to Yale or Harvard, you know? And so <laughs> it was a big dream. And I was obsessed with it. 
And I went to college, graduated in three years, 3.99 GPA. I remember I got like a B in chemistry. And like to the last day, I was like, please change it. Please change it. (laughs) I have to go to Yale. And I applied and didn't get in. And then I applied again and didn't get in. And then I applied for the third time and got waitlisted. And I ended up basically knocking on the dean's door and uh, getting him to eventually let me transfer there. But it was years in the making. You know, I had this idea in my head, though, but if I had that credential, then people would think that I was smart. And then this door would open and that door would open and that door would open. That's so interesting. So what is the first thing that happened after you graduated? Because you went on to yeah. study more. Well, I graduated $300,000 in student loan debt. Um, Gore had lost. So I wasn't going to D.C. to the Department of Justice. And I saw lots of my colleagues basically go to law firms in New York City. And I was like, okay, I guess that's what I should do. And maybe I can pay off the student loan debt real quick. And then I could go do the thing I was meant to do which is public service. And I naively thought that that would happen in a couple of years, and it didn't. And 10 years later, I woke up in this job that I hated. I was working as a lawyer in finance, and I was miserable every day. So that first job, what was it like? Uh, it's you're a lawyer. Yeah, I mean that's you're in New York. Yeah, that kind of you. I'm assuming that you were making enough money to pay off your debt. Oh my God, so much! I remember I got my first paycheck. My dad was like, "Let me frame it." You know, they had never seen so much money. You know, it was a big deal. It was the American dream. You know, my family came here as refugees, so like to be able to make that amount of money like out of law school was like, wow. That part was fun for a while. You could get an apartment. You could, like, not eat at Taco Bell. Like, you know, you could, like, shop at Guilt Group. My lifestyle changed, and and that was seductive, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the problem sometimes with money is in that way, especially when we don't come from much, uh, it becomes something that you then feel like you need. Like right? an addiction. And like an addiction, but you it also doesn't really make you happy. And so I think that that crashed for me real hard when I turned 33. And I was like, wait a minute here. Like, I'm not young anymore. This isn't fun. And I'm depressed. What was the work like itself? Like, what was your day-to-day work like? And what was your day-to-day schedule like for people who are who are interested in going sort of the corporate law yeah. route? So I, I think it's a little bit different now. But I mean, it's a lot of it was a lot of FaceTime. You know, you had to show up on time at like nine 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 thirty. Mm-hmm. A lot of people stayed there way, you know, to ten, eleven o'clock. So you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner essentially at your desk. Uh, you had these fancy cars that would take you home. You know, if you worked after a certain hour, which again was like so cool and fun. You know, in the beginning, but after a while, it wasn't. And I thought I was going to be litigating these like really high profile cases and like be in a courtroom or. And I, it was a lot of reviewing documents. Mm. It wasn't as glamorous or even for me as intellectually stimulating as I thought it was going to be. But it, look, it did a lot of things for me. It taught me how to write a memo. You know, I learned about research. I learned how to be a professional. And and those were like important things to learn. But it wasn't, look, I, I really believe in life. You have to find the thing that makes you happy. We often think that we have to pay our dues and I was paying my dues, and then for what end? Right. I didn't want to be a law partner here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to work here for the rest of my life. 
And so the minute I made that realization, which was probably within the first six to 10 months, I should have left. But I didn't have the courage to. It's interesting. We, uh, in speaking with someone else on this podcast, they said, when you see your boss and your boss's boss and you realize those are not the jobs you yeah. want, that's when you need to start having a more serious conversation with yourself. A thousand percent. And listen, it was hard for me because I had a lot of student loan debt and I had a family that wasn't rich and nobody was you know, going to be paying my bills. And that was scary to me. But what I didn't realize is that I actually wasn't saving as much as I could because I was spending to drink or eat or shop away my lack of like fulfillment. And I thought if I had this like perfect job that my parents would be, my immigrant parents would be proud of, that it would make me happy. And it didn't. And I knew that. I knew that when I was in law school doing these interviews. So you knew it that early on. I think so. I was really honest with myself. And that's interesting because that makes me wonder, too, like, you had spent years to get into Yale. Yeah. And had done so much work to get into Yale. And then you spend the time in law school, which I'm sure couldn't have been, like, the easy, breeziest experience. And you go through all of the effort to get this high-powered, fancy job. And it must be really terrifying to be that deep into something and realize it's not what you actually want. Yeah. I mean, look, it's so so amazing that you put it that way. I had worked so hard to get to Yale Law School. You know, I had such deep conviction that I wanted to be a lawyer. But I knew that when I was doing these interviews that working at a law firm, working in corporate America was not what I wanted to do. I mean, I led marches when I was 13. Mm. You know, I led marches all throughout college. I've been an activist my whole life. Like my dream was to work at the ACLU. You know, and I think what happens is that you end up having a lot of this debt and you don't feel like you have a choice. And then you get, for, for some of us, right, you're like, you want to pay me what? And you think you can do that for a little bit and then buy your freedom And it's not that simple. And I don't think we have enough of these conversations. And it's hard to say to someone, no, trust me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, do the public interest job. Make the $40,000. Don't go after it. If you you know already what your heart is telling you to do. And, like, my heart was very clear. Like, very clear. I just wasn't listening to her. Got it. So did you pay off that debt? I'm still paying it off. Still. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, that's so terrifying. But also, at least you have your freedom now. I do. I do. And it's it's small enough now that, like, it doesn't... Keep you awake at night? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then let's go back. So everything looks great on paper. Yeah. You're living this dream life, yeah. especially for immigrant parents. Yeah. And then you made a huge, crazy pivot and decided to run for Congress. Yeah. I remember my, my best friend calls me. And it's, you know, after Hillary lost, you know, her presidential election, I remember she had this line where she said, you know, just because I failed, you know, doesn't mean you shouldn't try to. And my best friend calls me. I'm in this like windowless conference room on like 45th or 47th Street. And I, you know, I'm at that moment in my life coming home every day, like in the fetal position. Like I'm feeling so broken and so unhappy and so stuck. And I don't know how to get out. And I'm talking to her and I'm crying. And she just says to me, you know, Rish, just quit. And it was these really simple words. And I was like, what? 
Like, like that was not even an option as like, far as you thought. Wait, yeah. Like, I can quit. And she's like, you need to quit. And the minute she said those words, everything opened up for me. And I, I started having a different future. Because I think what was happening at that moment is that, you know, do you ever have, do you ever convince yourself out of the thing that you're meant to do? And you let your great ideas basically just die. And then you see other people doing the thing that you knew you should have pursued and succeeding at it. And you're full of like this regret and envy. And I just didn't want to be that person. And I couldn't say I was young anymore. I was in my early 30s. That's still young. That's still very, very young. But it's kind of at that (laughs) point where you're like, oh, like. I can't waste my time anymore. I can't mess around anymore. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm going to do it, I got to do it. And and if it was and for me it was running for office. That was always my thing. Like my I talk about my ledge, mm-hmm. you know, my scary thing. But the thing I so desperately wanted to do, and I've always wanted to serve. I just that was it. And this was the way. And so yeah, I made the decision to make to run for office. I mean, how what happened next? Oh my god, so crazy. walk me through this. So you know, this uh, when I first decided to run, the seat was supposed to be open, right? Seats in New York City never open up. So there's a whole kind of class of industry of male people and consultants and pollsters, right, who evaluate talent mm. and tell you whether you have a shot or don't. When the seat was open, people were like, oh, my God, you would be amazing, right? Like, you should run. And so they started kind of giving me the courage to think about my dream, the congresswoman then decides not to run for the Senate and decides to stay in her seat. So it becomes a different calculus. Mm. But now I've gotten excited and I've gotten a little bit of courage. And I ain't going. Because you had that great feedback. Because I had that great feedback. And I've got my permission from my best friend. I've also now got my permission from my father. And I start thinking about Congresswoman Sajani, right? I start thinking about You're hearing what this. that's going to look like. Uh-huh. And that I could leave this miserable, right, you know, job that I hate. And now I start having those conversations and they're like, oh, no, 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 that is that is suicide. Like you you that is you cannot do that. And I'm like, what? And I refuse to listen. And I don't know how I found the courage to do that. There was something deep inside of me that was just like, I, I want to do this. I'm going to try. And I started at that moment, I think, stopping quitting before I even tried. And that was the beginning of the end. So at what point did you quit your job? And what was your plan? And how did the run go? So I quit my job. uh, And like, basically, I couldn't get any of the political class to help me. So I had this like ragtag group of like friends and family. And we're like, all right, well, we know how to build a website. Like we're, you know, we're techies, we're creative. And we built this website, Rushman for Congress. And I remember, like, we raised, like, $50,000 from, like, Indian aunties that were just so happy. And Indian girl was running. Because, like, oh, yeah, I was the first Indian-American woman to run for poli- run for Congress. So for the community, it was, like, a big deal. For young people, it was, I mean, I was 33 years old, which at that, at that time, I was the youngest woman to run, I think, that year. It was hot. It was What new. year was this? 2010. Okay. So. Ten years ago. Almost. Wow. Yeah. So you quit your job. Yeah. You have the buy-in from the people who matter most to yep. you and you start going down this path yeah but the path is also slightly different because it went from being an open seat to not yeah. 
Yeah, and I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never run for office. I obviously couldn't call my immigrant parents and be like, what? <laughs> Nobody in my life. You know, you know, so it's like I'm literally making up as I go along. I remember the first hire I made was someone who's now my friend Ben. I thought I needed a speech. I had to get a speech because if I had the speech, I was unstoppable. And it was crazy now in retrospect how obsessed I was with basically getting my perfect stump speech. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first kind of investment I made in myself was this beautiful, perfect little stump speech. And then, you know, I started kind of learning like, all right, how do you build a campaign? Okay, I need a campaign manager. Okay, I need this person. I need that person. I got to raise this amount of money. I got to open up a bank account. I got to get a lawyer. I got to get, a t- I mean, woof. And I, I didn't have anyone to ask. I had to figure it all out. Myself. How did you figure this out? I mean, I, good thing that you had all that research. Background. I had all that research. I Googled it, and and some of the some of the young folks that I found that worked for me, I and mean, they're still like my little munchkins. They're all in my life now. <laughs> but again, it was this kind of like ragtag group of like believers. Well, I think that's what you need in something like yeah. this. So how did that process go? And were you worried about finances because you've gone from having this super yes. high-paying, high-powered job yes. to now and being I on your own? And I couldn't work because I had to run. Right. And I had to go to 1,000 meetings and meet people. Yeah, I just saw my savings account deplete itself. And I was prepared to take that risk. Okay. And, yeah, I ate a lot of ramen noodles and pizza. You make some sacrifices. I made some sacrifices. I was going to invest in myself. So how did that process turn out? Ooh, I lost miserably. I feel like I got, like, less than, you know, 1,200 votes. And it was it was rough. I was broke. I was humiliated. I had, you know, pissed off everybody in the Democratic establishment. But it was the best 10 months of my life. Looking back on that time, would you do anything differently? Oh, my God. You know, I think that I wasn't – I didn't run as myself. I was really wrapped up in being the perfect candidate, Mm. whether it was the perfect speech or the perfect suit or, like, talking a female of you. (laughs) I know. (laughs) We think we have to be the perfect everything. And I just couldn't let go. And I think that that – that hurt me. You know, very early on, I did this stupid interview with the New York Times where I was just like, I just wasn't prepared. And I had never done something like that. I mean, so much of this stuff you have to understand, like, I was never, I've never, I never went on TV before. I never sat down with a reporter like that. Like, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And instead of kind of correcting the narrative, I just let it lie. And I always had so much regret about that because I let other people define me uh, rather than letting people see me. Right. Uh, And I've never done that before. Again, I learned from that mistake. What is the best thing that you learned from that experience? To be yourself. Flaws and all. Flaws and all. Let let it all hang out. Let everybody see who you are. And that's how I live my life now. And that's, you know, that's how I've built Girls Who Code. It's very freeing, isn't it? It is. I mean, look, I'm not a coder. Like, I have no business starting a movement called Girls Who Code. But I... I, I, but I, why not you? Yeah, but, but that's what you would think. That's what the old Rashman would think, right? Not you because you're not an expert. Right. Not you because you're not perfect for that job. Not you because if I applied for that job right now, I probably wouldn't get the job, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you convince yourself all the reasons why not you. Um, but I was like, you know what the number one reason to do something is if you have passion and conviction. And nobody has more passion than I do about teaching girls to code. Right. Or creating opportunity for girls like that's like my that's my life. 
And that's all that's all you need. Right. Okay, so let's back up. Yeah. So the Congress the run for Congress doesn't pan out. Disaster. What did you do next? I cried for a month and drank a lot of margaritas. Totally reasonable. Uh, and then I was like, oh my God, I'm not broken. I I could do really hard things. I could do risky things. I could fail and like it will be okay. I can fail publicly and I it can will be fail okay. Publicly. I can have people laugh at me. I can have people commit to like making my life miserable because I had the audacity to run and it will still be okay. And that was magical. And that changed my whole life. And that's when I said, well, first I was like, I ain't going back to the private sector. I'm going to run again, but right not right now. And I, but I'm going to keep making an impact and I'm going to keep the promises that I made to people that I met. And so I said, what are of all the things I saw, what's a, what, what is the one thing where I feel like I can make a difference? And it was this issue. It was girls and technology. Because I had seen a ton of boys. I was to say, where did that come from? Because you, I would go to schools, and I would see a ton of boys coding and, like, building things. And I was like, well, where are the girls? Mm-hmm. And so I'm very curious. So I started by, like, researching. Where are the girls in technology? What happened? Why aren't they there? Like, and I basically uncovered a problem. And I have always have a side hustle. Like I have my job and then I have the thing that I'm coming home and I'm working on. And Girls Who Code became my side hustle. And I would at lunch go and meet people and, you know, talk to people and learn. And and I by the end of two years kind of came up with the idea of like I wanna I wanna build a program for girls only that is over the summer. That's basically taking them to a technology company and teaching them how to code over the course of it used to be eight weeks, but now seven weeks. Uh, and that was kind of like my model that I had come up with, you know, after a couple of years of really thinking about it. So you decided to start a nonprofit, mm-hmm. which is a whole process yeah. in and of itself. Yeah. How did you navigate that? Yeah. I mean. And how did you fund this? Yeah. I just started. So maybe the first step I took was I bought a URL. I wrote the business plan. Had you written a business plan before? No. No, I. It, what, what Let ha- me guess. Research comes in handy. Yeah, again? basically. So a couple things happened. So I brought the URL. I started thinking about kind of what the idea was. I met just amazing people along the way who are like, I'm a teacher, and I've been, you know, wrote a thesis on girls and coding. This woman, Leanne, let me design your curriculum, right? Or you know, I'm a principal in New York City who has a spreadsheet of all the teachers in New York. I will blast it out when you come up with your idea. Amazing. You know, far too often we hide our dreams. Like, I don't want to tell you what I really want to do because I don't want you to either laugh at me or I don't want to fail. But I I would tell people, hey, I'm trying to start this organization. Will you help me? Do you have an idea? Do you know someone? And I learned that from the campaign. And so I kept meeting people who wanted to help. And I had to do this TEDx talk. And I had two different ideas. I'm like, all right, let me give it on the girls of code, my Girls of Code idea. And I think I realized that when I was telling, you know, I was doing it, I was like, oh, this is, this is something. And at the same time, I was writing a book, uh, my first book, Women Who Don't Wait in Line, and I was interviewing a lot of amazing women. So I remember I was interviewing, like, Beth Comstock, and she's like, so what are you working on? And I'm like, well, I have this idea. And she's like, I love it. How can I help you? So that's how I started raising money. I would meet a Beth Comstock, and she would give me 
$10,000. You know, I met who's now a friend, this guy, Alex Ablin, who worked at Google. And he had access to like the small pool of community money at Google. And he was like, I love your idea. I'll fund, I'll, I'll give you $10,000. So like, it was like bootstrapping it kind of together. And, you know, to be honest, like when I launched the first year, I bought the girls pizza on my credit card. I borrowed a friend's conference room. We, there were so many people who were willing to give me stuff for free just to try. It's amazing what people will give you if you ask. So you're buying the girls pizza. You're putting together like where the conference is. At what point did you realize, I think I'm really on to something? I knew from the first summer because we had these amazing young women. Many of them. How many were in that first program? 20. 20 for eight weeks. 20 for eight weeks. And we, I remember, I think the first year we paid them like $500 because I was like, there's no way they're going to stay in this conference room and learn how to code. And what were their ages? They were, I think the first year we had rising uh, sophomore juniors and seniors in in high school. Now it's only ju- rising juniors and seniors in high school. I think we had a mix. I mean, the powerful thing in the first year was that so many of those girls just didn't have computers at home or at school. And so it was this kind of mix of girls from different races, from different backgrounds. How did you recruit? We, I had that email spreadsheet and I just blasted a bunch of teachers and then librarians and just word of mouth. And, you know, we kind of screened and picked 20 girls. And we didn't know what we were doing. Now we have like algorithms and like, you know, all this like process develops. Right. And the crazy thing was, is that I actually ran again for public advocate at the same time while I was launching Girls Who Code. What is public advocate for those of us who don't know? So public advocate is like the second in command in New York City. Think of it in some ways as like an elected deputy mayor. I was the deputy public advocate. And so I wanted to run on a platform of getting computer science education for all, ironically. Yeah. And so the first year was really, I just, you knew. I knew that like there was something magical here because the things that girls wanted to do, and and I had, you know, we had designed the program to make it about building something. Because again, this idea of girls as change makers, activists, that's so much of like my philosophy and so much of my core. I wanted that basically in the curriculum. And that work, that resonated. So like, you know, Leslie's bringing, you know, building websites for women who are, you know, who have bodegas in, in Queens and whose businesses were decimated, you know, from Sandy and, and didn't have Facebook pages, right? Cora's building an algorithm to find a cure to cancer. Like, it's just, it was just amazing. So they get into teams and they can build whatever they want on whatever issue that they want. We've been now been doing this, you know, we're, we're seven years in. But yeah, that started that summer. I then lost my race and then I had a choice to say, do I want to go run my organization full time? Do I want to sit on the board? What do I want to do? And, you know, I realized in my mind at that moment, I was like, okay, if like people are not going to elect me, I'm not going to give up my dream to like create opportunity for girls. And that the only way that my dream is going to be as big as it can be is if I go in and do it. And that's when I kind of decided to come and run the organization full time. And it was a scary moment for me because like I didn't I never thought I'd be a nonprofit leader. That was not my dream when I was gonna grow up. And I so I always tell people and I realize you never know where your failure journey leads you. Right. Like part of life is about what this is why I talk so much in Brave Not Perfect about the importance of taking risk and failing, because you really and it's not for the purpose of getting the thing that you want. It's about the purpose of the journey and where it leads you. And also learning how to recover. 
Yeah. I think that's something that's so important, too, that we are so afraid of as women because I think we don't put the, ourselves out there the way that men do on a regular basis. So if they, if someone says no to them, they just brush it off because yeah. they've done it a bunch and they've yeah. heard no a bunch. Yeah. We don't hear no, no a lot. And so then we don't no. know what to do when we're faced with it. It's the way that we're raised, right? We're raised to be perfect and we're raised to people please. And people are raising us in thinking that they have to protect us. And I always say, like, I just feel like the way that we've been raising our girls is wrong. It's not about coddling and protection. It's about building resilience. We have to stop wrapping them with bubble wrap. Totally. Agreed. Okay, so you decided to go in and run Girls Who Code full-time. At that point, how big was the organization, and how did you grow it? It was like four people. Yeah. Four or five people. And it was, we just, you know, essentially gone through our first summer, about to start our second summer. You know, up until that point, I, I had kind of been chief fundraiser and chief, you know, idea person. And, but I was never, you know, I never thought I would want to come in and run the day to day. I'm the visionary big ideas person, right? But like, am I doing KPIs and performance reviews? Like, you know, but I had Had, to. Had you managed people before? I had managed people in, you know. Are you good at managing? I'm better at it. I had to learn. It's Um, not my strong suit personally. Yeah, it's not. uh, I, I like to throw people in the deep end. You know, I grew up in a very Asian family where no one told me great job, you know, and so some of that, you know, people need to be told that they need to be told affirmation. Not everybody likes to be thrown into the deep end. You know, people want to know how they're progressing in their performance. And I get all that. And it's like I'm more of an activist, you know, I mean, organizer type. Now, here's the thing. I think the best thing that ever happened to me is now I am an executive. Now I run a 80-person, full-time, thousands of people, part-time, you know, $25 million organization that I have built. But I have learned how to be a CEO. And you can't do that unless you actually are in charge of big budgets, big staff, big ideas, big responsibility aboard. And so I'm so lucky that I had the chance to learn that skill set. So how did you grow it? from four people to this huge thing? You know, I was relentless about growth. And what did growth I would mean just, to you? Growth meant to me numbers. Numbers of girls in the program? Yes. Numbers of girls taught. So we, our metric is, you know, we want to get girl, girls to major or minor in computer science and close the gender gap in, in tech. So I have a number that I want to teach, right? I wanted to teach a million girls to code. And I set that number really big intentionally because I knew that it would bother me if I didn't get there. Mm-hmm. And so every year we would, you know, we would have one program, then eight programs. And I'd say, all right, well, we're going to grow by, let's call it 300%. You know, we're going to go to 20 and then we're going to go to 50. And then we're, so I just, and then we're going to launch clubs. But I stayed in this kind of very narrow space of girls, call it, you know, 12 to 17 in coding. And what are all the program offerings, essentially, that we can do? And then the second part of our work is really how do we change culture? How do we build a brand? How do we think about our colors, our swag, you know, our videos, our content, you know, everything about the way that we speak? Like, what's my role as chief evangelist? What am I trying to move people to do? And so those were things that we stayed – I've always been the same. You know what I mean? From 2012 to now in 2019. Interesting. I love that. So, 
again, we talk about money pretty candidly on yeah. this podcast. How did you fund this? How did you, like, at what point did you realize you needed to take a salary? Yeah. Because, like, for Catherine and I in the beginning, we were lucky. We were coming to this project with no debt. So no education debt, no medical debt. I wasn't supporting anyone. I didn't have to support my parents. So, like, I started on second base. But I also was coming from working at a fashion magazine in New York. So I had zero savings. So when we first started, and Catherine had some money saved, so I had to freelance on the side to get things going. And it took us a long time before we were able to pay ourselves because all of the money just kept going back into the business. And it was very, it was a very uncomfortable time for me for a long time. How did you work through the money piece of this? Well, listen, I started fundraising when it was an idea in my head. So I really had seed money, you know, before we get started to pay people. Maybe and maybe it's a lot of like the way that I've been raised. I'm very cheap. You know, I like to save money, you know, I'm frugal and like the and, and not on people, right? But on like myself or like things. And so I wanted to always make sure that we had enough money in the bank. Um and so we, you know, we had a lot of seed capital in many ways to kind of start the work that we're doing. And have you found that part to be easy, generally speaking? Well, it's only because I'm comfortable asking for money. And I learned that through being a political organizer. So I tell everyone who's listening, like, go raise money for a candidate. Go ask somebody for, for money. Best case, ask somebody for money for yourself. Because I never was embarrassed to, like, pick up the phone or make the ask. I mean, sometimes I shock people. Um, but I'm a good fundraiser. Mm-hmm. and But I've been practicing at it, you know, honestly, ever since I was probably in my, you know, my teens. Right. So That's that activist background. Yeah. And so I think that that is very, very, very – so that made a difference. Mm-hmm. Secondly, like, I believe in my work. And I think people can tell. And I think the thing is, is people want to invest in people. And people wanted to invest in me and, and wanted to invest in this. They, people wanted this idea to succeed. And they wanted me to succeed. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, I do feel like if I was a man and I was starting Boys Who Code, this would be – I'd have a lot more. That it's harder when you're, ra- when you're a woman, right? Harder when you're a woman of color. Harder when you are raising for girls' education. You know, and a lot of that stuff really pissed me off. And so I was more – Aggressive and in many ways, probably. and determined. Right, exactly. And I didn't take it personally when people said no, which is smart. Yeah. So, do you think that for women who are considering a career change and are thinking about whether they're pivoting industries or staying within the same industry but working on a different aspect or want to go into business for themselves or want to go into a totally different sector, do you think they should have a nest egg set aside or do you think they should just start doing the thing that they want to do? I think it really depends on your financial circumstance. Like for me, I was helping my parents pay for their mortgage. I needed my father's permission to say we're good. Like I needed them to be good. It was fine if I was, you know, I had had moments in my life where I was living on somebody's couch and, you know, like on my Perkins loan and like, but I needed my family to be good. Um, So I feel like that's just like, that's so personal for people. You know, this is what pisses me off about the inequality in our country because you often find that it's very rich people who are able to make these kinds of decisions and not working people, you know, not even middle class people. And it sucks that so much of my life where my my situation dictated my choices and my dreams. 
But I think I overstated it. Like, I probably could have left a little bit sooner. You know, like, I'm still paying my debt. It's okay. But I was scared. That's real. So you have a new book. Yeah. That's out now. It's my baby. And it was inspired by that TED Talk, mm-hmm. correct? And it's called Brave Not Perfect. And you discuss the way in which women feel crushed under the weight of their own expectations, of society's expectations, of what their families expect from them, and how we just become afraid to fail. So if if there was one takeaway from this book that you could share, what would it be? That you can unlearn perfectionism. And that if you're brave— Tell me how. <laughs> yes, you can unlearn it. And bravery brings joy. This book is not about getting a promotion, doing well at work. This book is about doing, being happy at life. Big distinction. Big distinction. And, like, I feel like you can build a bravery muscle. And there's certain practices that I talk about in the book, like, one, practice imperfection. You know, send an email with a typo in it. Ugh. I know. <laughs> but do it, and you're like, oh. The world didn't fall apart. Practice imperfection, you know, doing something you suck at. I know so many men that love to play basketball or golf, and they are horrible at it, horrible at it. But they just like it, so they do it. I don't know one woman who has a hobby or does something. That she sucks at? That she sucks at. (laughs) It's true, right? And so think about, it's such a huge difference. But think about how important this point is. Because we don't even know what we like because we only do the things that we're good at. Or that we've been told we're good at. Exactly. So I've been liberated by like doing something I suck at, which is surfing. You know, I'm going to take a gymnastics class because I can't do a cartwheel. And I'll never be able to do a cartwheel. But I want to be free of just doing the things that I'm, quote, good at. Or again, people tell me that I'm good at. And it feels so freaking good. And like the the last thing is like just start. You know, take one step. I feel too often we we talk ourselves out of our best ideas. And like, you know, even it's something like your closet's a mess and you're staring at it and you feel crappy about it every day. Clean one shelf. Clean one shelf. It feels so good. It's true that in thinking about, and this is something I've learned from my business partner, Catherine, when you have a big project and it seems insurmountable, just start dividing it up into things. Yeah. Divide it into smaller tasks. Make it make one thing eight things. And then in those eight things, make that four things each. Yeah. And then you can start attacking something. And then you're not tackling this huge insurmountable project, but you're tackling one shelf. Yep. And it, and it feels good, and you and you realize that so much of this is about the journey. You know, there's a big difference, I would say, between, like, you know, perfectionism and excellence, the difference between, like, kind of the love and obsession. And we got to start enjoying the journey mm-hmm. and not be so determined about the outcome. Because we don't even know what that outcome is going to be often. No, we don't. And I think we're probably both living proof of that, right? <laughs> As is every woman on yeah. this podcast. I mean, I couldn't have imagined how my life would go. No. And I think, again, when we think about where we – I always feel like if you want to know what your ledge is or the thing that you should be doing, like, go to where you feel envy or where you feel regret or where you, your, your, your stomach sinks a little bit. You know, that's where you need to go. And you realize that, like, that's so, like, toxic – you know, there's a reason why women are depressed at a rate of two times the rate of men, because it's about perfectionism, right? It's like we thought we were supposed to be do all these things to make us happy, and they're not. Social media doesn't help. 
The fact that many of us have two Instagram accounts, one for our real life, one for our fake life. How many selfies do you take to put the perfect? I mean, the point. I yeah. mean, the point of a selfie is supposed to be natural. Like men, <laughs> one, one take. It's a lot of time and energy we spend on these things. It's true. It's also interesting to get through that process of trusting yourself. And I feel like one of the lucky things about my career is that I had those moments where, you know, at Elle magazine, the entire features team would get together. And everyone would pitch ideas. And I would have these ideas that I was too afraid to say in front of everyone because it's the editor-in-chief. It's the features director. It's these incredibly smart women and men who I worshipped and was intimidated by. And I wouldn't say the idea. And then a colleague of mine who I would often discuss my idea (laughs) with would present my idea as hers, and the team would love it. Yeah. It was the worst feeling because the idea was valid. The problem was is that I wasn't presenting it because it was my idea. You didn't believe in yourself enough to say it. And that happened to me in enough meetings that it honed. And, and to be fair, in the beginning, I did not have any ideas in those meetings. Yeah. And when the spotlight would come to me, I would pass. But I started to learn how to develop those ideas, and then I had a bunch of those ideas taken, and then I realized how much that sucked, and I was able to then say, like, no, I'm going to start saying it. But it was I had an incubator pressure situation of a few years of that, and then all of a sudden it forced me to trust myself and to trust my own instincts. And I think that's so important that however you get there, if you could just trust in your own vision, however that happens. And it may even be a stupid idea. But just say it. Like, I, I think it was, I was on NBR and this guy was calling in saying he's a mechanical engineering teacher. And he said, you know, I literally have guys raising their hand, you know, before I even put the question on the board. Being like, I know, I know, I can solve it. And he's like, dude, I haven't even put the question on the board yet. Mm-hmm. But that amount of, it, it's not just confidence. It's like he's not going to fall apart if his solution is wrong. Whereas we take it so personally, you know, and we go straight from maybe maybe I'll do better next time to I suck. I'm worthless. I can never do I, this. I can never do this. And in an instant. And it's because of this training that needs to happen. But he, I, like I said, why I'm so excited about this message is because I don't think it's too late. I just don't think it's too late. I agree. So we also, speaking of Instagram, we like to talk about mistakes on this mm. podcast yes. because while you can always be inspired by someone else's victory, you don't really learn that much from it, but you can definitely learn yeah. from their failure or from their yeah. mistake. So tell me about a mistake that you've made in your career and what you learned from it. So I have my failure Fridays because I love talking about failure too. So on Instagram, so I talk about my mistakes all the time. I just feel like so many times I just didn't believe enough in myself. I didn't call it into the universe. I didn't just let it be. You know, I always felt like I had to be a martyr and push something up a mountain. And so I'm just in the a constant practice of like, you're all good. You're all good. So that was looking backwards. Let's think about looking forward. Yeah. What are you working on now? What are your big upcoming goals? Yeah. What, are, what are you doing? Well, I am working on a bravery revolution. I... I I don't know if you've ever, I haven't felt this excited about something since I lodged Girls Who Code in the terms of I feel like it's ability to make real change. And like I really, really believe in the bottom of my heart, 
when women are braver, they will be more joyful. And I think we need a lot more joyful women right now. And look, it's we are in this really kind of hopeful time. I'm feeling hopeful. And I think you know, you're seeing bravery on the biggest stage. You have four women running for president. You look at Congress now. You look at Congress now, those lovely, amazing women. Now let's start let's start putting everyday bravery forward. So like when someone you know bumps into you in the street, don't say sorry. He bumped into you. When you're in that job that you feel like, uh, about, start looking for another one. You know, if you're like me and like struggled to lose the baby weight and needed to get to the gym or just do something for yourself and felt guilty about going at 7.30 in the morning because the dog needed to go out and the baby was waking up, go to the gym. Like do whatever that is. Do something for yourself. Have the bravery to do something for you. So my last question is my favorite question. Oh. If you could go back in time mm. and speak with younger Reshma, mm-hmm. what advice would you give her? Uh, see, I'm going to tell her to be brave, not perfect. I tell her to put that perfect girl aside. Listen to her heart. Don't worry about what other people think. Those are wonderful words of advice. That was founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, Reshma Saujani. For more inspiring interviews with women like Reshma, head on over to secondlifepod.com. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social. And now you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Instagram and Twitter. We always want to know who you'd like to hear from on the show. So send in your request the old-fashioned way via email to hello at secondlifepod.com or you can DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr and we are at Second Life Pod. DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr and you've been listening to Second Life. <laughs>